If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. there. This is episode 99 of the Leading Learning Podcast. This time around, Jeff and I talk about the state of learning and technology in the association sector. This is a topic that is prompted by the fact that we are about to publish the fifth edition of our Association Learning Plus Technology Report. Before we get to that discussion, though, we want to thank your membership, the podcast sponsor for the third quarter of 2017. Your membership's learning management system is specifically designed for professional education with a highly flexible and intuitive system that customizes the learning experience. Your membership's LMS seamlessly integrates with key systems to manage all of your educational content formats in one central location while providing powerful tools to create and deliver assessments, evaluations, and learning communities. You can find out more about your membership at yourmembership.com. For our resource for this episode, we want to, appropriately enough, highlight our Association Learning Plus Technology report. The report is based on a survey of a broad range of trade and professional associations, and Association Learning Plus Technology provides the most comprehensive insights currently available on the use of technology to enhance and enable education in the association sector. You can access that report for free by going to tagoras.com slash learn tech. And if you're listening to this episode before September 15th, 2017, um, you can grab that issue of the uh, report and you'll automatically be sent the next edition, the 2017 edition, which we'll be releasing after September 15th. Well, it's amazing to me that uh, we are now on the fifth edition of this report, and and it's been more than five years uh, that we've been doing it. We actually ran our first survey for this report in 2008, so we're we're coming up on a decade now. And then, I mean, even before that, we kind of had a a prototype version of it back in the company that we owned and, and ran before Tagoras. Yeah, that's right. We've been at it for quite a while now, and um, it's been our tradition here on the Leading Learning Podcast um, to to step back and reflect. And so we thought this would be a good episode to devote to the report, to talk a little bit about why we do it, um, the changes that we've seen over the years, and and perhaps most importantly, um, how we feel the report and the data can be useful to organizations. So maybe let's start with that first one, you know, why we started doing this report in the first place. And you know, I just mentioned that uh, we began doing it when we were running our last company. Um, Tagoras is, is not the first company that we've had together. We had a company called ISOF for many years where we actually built and, and managed and implemented a learning management system, built a lot of e-learning content for trade and professional associations. And, you know, as we as we found we were working more and more with nonprofits in general and with trade and professional associations as part of that nonprofit sector we felt there was a gap in knowledge about what was going on with uh, e-learning out in, in that field at the time. And uh, so, you know, even back in the Tagoras days, we, we wanted to do something that would contribute to the field, that would, you know, give some some benchmarks um, and uh, help organizations just kind of, you know, know the lay of the land. And of course, as we began uh, working with Tagoras and were really focused specifically on trade and professional associations, that's where this particular report really came to focus and, and how those organizations organizations are using learning and technology. And, you know, of course, at the, at the same time, um, this was a way for us to 
do our own content marketing. We're, we're you know, big proponents of content marketing here at Tagoras uh, as a way for us to put some content out there that would establish our thought leadership and, and give us, you know, hopefully some, some authority in, in the field, become a uh, trusted provider of uh, information about the field. Um, so, you know, we, we feel like it has done that for us uh, to, a, to a large extent. We certainly hear a lot about the report from folks. And, you know, and then the final thing to, to mention is it, uh, it, it has actually been a, a revenue source for us. It is, it is part of our business model. It's not a big part of our business model, but um, we originally charged for the report um, and then eventually moved to getting sponsorships for the report. And it's a good way to, right now, to engage with the, uh, the vendor community in, in particular. It's something that um, they know that, that we do, and um, they'll also, you know, track this data uh, that's part of the sector. So, you know, contributing to the field, um, building our own reputation, and, and a small amount of revenue from it. So those are, those are some of the, you know, the, the reasons that motivated us to, to do this and to continue to do it. Yeah, so I think that, that right, having that multiple um, benefits, both for ourselves and we think for the, the field at, at large. And so, as we mentioned, we first um, released a report in 2009, and it was called Association E-Learning. 2009. Um, and then we released the next report in 2011. And with that, we shifted the name of the report to Association Learning Plus Technology. So the first one of those was in 2011. And then we had one in 2014, 2016. And now we are on the cusp of releasing 2017. So as we've noted before, this is the, the fifth of the reports in this series. And um, and I'll comment a little bit on that change in titles. Like I said, we first released it as Association E-Learning. That was way back in 2009, which, you know, I, I think um, internet years are a lot like dog years. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, what what happened is that we started to feel like, you know, e-learning comes with a certain amount of baggage. I think um, there are baggage on at least multiple levels. One level being just for some people, they, they think kind of narrowly about e-learning. Maybe for them that just is really sort of self-paced courses right? and um, that type of content, that specific type of, of technology-enabled learning. The other thing is, is that we also were beginning to see a, a shift that I think has only become more pronounced over the, the last few years, which is just this fact that... Um, as technology becomes so ingrained in our lives and the way that we live and do work and the way that we learn, this idea of e-learning being distinct from other types of learning, um, it, it's losing some of that, uh, some of the distinctiveness there. Some of those boundaries are beginning to blur. And so we started talking more about technology being used to enhance or enable education. So that can mean things that are totally done online. Um, so could be those self-paced um, courses that a lot of people associate directly with e-learning, but it could also be more broadly technology used uh, in the context um, alongside a, a classroom course or experience, so you have more of a blended experience, or even in more recent years as we've started to probe around the idea of sustaining learning. So maybe you do have a place-based um, learning experience, but then you're using technology to periodically check back in with folks, remind them of key points, see what application they're making of what's been taught. 
And that's become particularly important as we've seen the rise of social media and, you know, social media tools for, as you're saying, sustaining learning, extending learning, creating informal learning experiences, and then the focus on community and and community platforms. And we'll comment some on that in a little bit when we talk about the data, particularly in the association sector, that's become a big thing. And we see that as part of learning, but it's not what people have traditionally thought of as e-learning. So we wanted to, as you said, kind of broaden our approach to it and make it clear that this was a much bigger phenomenon than what people typically thought of as e-learning. And one of the other things that we've done over the years of, of offering the report and then the surveys that go behind each issue of the report is that we um, really clarified in, in 2016, so in the, the report prior to this one we're about ready to release, that um, while respondents must represent a membership organization. Um, we welcome uh, respondents from both nonprofit and for-profit membership organizations. So really our focus is on um, the idea of having a membership that you're trying to serve and that you're serving with uh, learning and often technology-enabled or enhanced learning. So those are some of the ways that our language has changed. And, um, and those language changes really are a, a response to the context change that, that we've seen out there, sort of the whole environment in which learning and technology are being used now. And, you know, we already commented on the rise of social media and, and community, but I mean, some of the other just really important things that have been going on over the, the past decade or so, and to a large extent have been really the basis of our business, is it, uh, that that market for lifelong learning, continuing education, professional development has changed so much. Uh, we know that you know, competition has increased in, in just about every field, and in some some fields, it's really cut cutthroat at this point. But uh, most organizations are experiencing more competition around their continuing education and professional development offerings. As a result, uh, we're seeing downward price pressure. A lot of organizations, you know, wrestle with with pricing, and you know, how do they compete with free? In, in many instances, a lot of free learning out there, um, and you know, probably a symptom of that. There have been reports lately, research done lately, saying that you know, there's actually a, a global decline in e-learning revenue, or at least self-paced uh, e-learning revenue, and that that's expected to continue and to amount to a you know six to seven percent decline in the coming years. And when you talk about the global market for e-learning, that translates into billions of dollars, I mean, more than $10 billion drop in, in revenue. You know, so there's that downward price pressure, downward revenue happening, again, mostly tied to self-paced. That doesn't apply to, to all learning formats. And, you know, along those lines, you know, we've seen the rise of, of a lot of different new formats. We've seen MOOCs come along. We've seen what's happened with mobile. We've seen things like micro-learning and micro-credentialing come along. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then I think overall, just as a a blanket change, we've seen the emergence of really adult lifelong learning and certainly e-learning as big business. I mean, we've got companies like, you know, lynda.com that got bought by LinkedIn for $1.5 billion. That's billion with a B. You know, we've seen the rise of the big MOOC players like edX and Coursera. We've seen Udemy, which is catering to subject matter experts. Amazon.com now has courses offered on uh, its site. You can actually go shop for courses on Amazon. That's that's a big shift towards commodity status, really, for you know self-paced uh, e-learning in particular. So all of that is going on, and that's kind of the context in in which this report has been happening uh, over the years. And uh, you know, for us, a really fascinating uh, and interesting uh, uh, context uh, to to be reporting on. And so, Jeff, you were just talking about those kind of bigger um, world shifts out there. And 
And I think one thing it would be uh, fun to do is to talk a little bit about how some of the data that we've um, been collecting over these years has changed. And I think the obvious place um, to start is with just the the prevalence of e-learning or the use of technology for learning. And so back in the 2009 report, um, 61.1% of respondents said that their organizations were currently using e-learning. And we defined e-learning very broadly back then. Um, You know, we said it's also known as computer-based training or online distance education. Um, But, you know, we said that it could include uh, webcasts, self-paced tutorials, podcasts, facilitated discussions, et cetera. We were very broad in that. So at that point, 2009 report, we had 61.1%. If we skip ahead to the 2017 results, we did shift the question a little bit. We changed it in in 2014. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, we've we've kind of tried to move away from the use of the term e-learning. And so the way we phrased the question from 2014 and on is that, you know, um, you know, are you using technology to deliver or to enhance learning? And again, we m- meant that very broadly, you know, webcasts, webinars, self-paced tutorials, virtual conferences, blended classrooms, all of those things. So in 2017, 92.6% of respondents say, yes, my organization offers uh technology-enabled or technology-enhanced learning. So that's a huge jump from 2009 to 2017. So we went from, you know, 61.1% to 92.6%. And so I think the clear takeaway there is just that, you know, the use of technology for learning has become mainstream. And so it's really not a question for organizations about whether to use technology for learning, but how best to use technology to support learning. That's true. I mean, it's it's a fact of life at, at this point. So, you know, if you're an organization that's not doing it, we always say, you know, don't just copy other organizations. That That's not really being strategic. But this is one where, you know, if you're not doing this yet, you really need to be asking yourself why. And then there's, there should be a, a very legitimate reason why you're not doing it if you're doing any other kind of education whatsoever. And um, and we should note, and we'll try to keep noting as we go along, these the statistics that we're talking about here, the data that we're talking about, we will include in the show notes for the episode, along with some additional data as well. You can always find our show notes by going to the, the episode number. So in this case, it would just be leadinglearning.com slash episode 99, and you'll be able to get some good data there. Now, another area, you know, uh, learning and technology has shot up. And of course, at the same time, we've seen some of the main technology that uh, tends to be used for uh, learning also grow. And and the the main one uh, that people tend to associate with online learning, of course, is a learning management system. Uh, Learning management system is usually the way you're going to upload and configure and publish and and manage uh, the different types of courses that you offer out to your audience. And uh, so back in 2009, um, and this was when it was called, you know, the e-learning report still, we asked, you know, whether organizations were using uh, an LMS or not. So, you know, does your organization currently um, use uh, an LMS for uh, its delivering its education? In in 2009, it was 34.4% percent of organizations that uh, indicated that they were doing that. Jump forward to 2017 when we asked, you know, basically the the same question and it's 66.9%. So, you know, we've seen it almost double from a a third 
to two-thirds of organizations that you know are using a, a formal platform, which is what an LMS uh, represents for the delivery of their online learning. And you know we expect to continue to see that grow. Um, there's been a lot of investment, a lot of shakeup in that LMS uh, arena in the association world recently. Um, we do a lot of, uh, or have traditionally done a lot of um, LMS selection type work, and we certainly have seen you know that business grow and grow and grow over the years. And so another platform that uh, we've begun asking about is um, webinar or webcast platforms. And, you know, as you were saying, Jeff, we ask um, in each survey for the, the set of respondents that say, hey, yes, we're doing technology-enabled um, learning, then we ask follow-up questions, one being around whether they use a learning management system. Then in 2014, we also started asking about webinar or webcast platforms. And so that first year that we collected the data, 84.4% were already using a webinar or webcast um, platform. So that's already higher than the uh, LMS usage there. And in, in the 2017 report, 91.8% of folks are using a um, uh, a webinar or webcast platform. So um, we're essentially at saturation point with these types of platforms. And um, we're going to talk in a little bit about the types of offerings. And so it's not too surprising to see how prevalent these platforms are um, when we talk about the types of, of, of technology-enabled learning that are being offered. And so we'll, we'll kind of close that loop in just a minute. But those are those are the two big platforms. Obviously, a, a learning management system and a webinar platform. Those are now typically integrated. Most LMSs are going to have, you know, some some pre-built integration bridges with the big webinar platforms that go to webinars and the Adobe's and uh, uh, the WebExes of, of the world. So we see that combination now. But but another type of platform that um, that we are seeing grow pretty substantially and expect to see a big uptick in this is the use of community platforms for learning. And we started asking about this back in 2009. And back then we characterized it as a private social networking site that, you know, in parentheses was only uh, for approved users. Only approved users can join it. And we kind of listed that among social media tools. This was before, you know, the higher logics and other big, you know, uh, community platforms came along and really s- established uh, that as a, a separate uh, vertical in, in the market. Um, back then, we had 16.1% of uh, respondents say that they were using some sort of private social networking site for learning. And this was, you know, this was for learning, not just kind of general usage. Jump forward to 2017, we've changed the terminology some. We'd now describe it as a private online community platform because that's really how it's thought about out in, in the marketplace now. Um, but the new number is 37.4%. So from 16.1% to 37.4%. Uh, obviously, we've, we've more than doubled there. Um, and we expect to you know, see the, the uptick in adoption continue to, to accelerate, continue to grow. If it follows kind of the same path as uh, LMSs have, then we're going to see it get up past the 70% mark uh, within the next decade. And given you know, the popularity of these types of platforms, I wouldn't be surprised to see it shoot well past that. Well, so I hinted at the fact that we were going to talk about the different types of offerings. So let's get to that now. And um, and what I'll say is that every ever since we started offering uh, the, the survey and the report, we've asked about um, whether organizations offer real-time 
webcasts or webinars and recorded or on-demand webcasts and webinars. And those have always been the most popular type of uh, technology-enabled learning that we've asked about. And so in, in 2009, there were 61, excuse me, 67.1% offering real-time webinars, and then um, uh, 56% offering on-demand um, webinars. If we skip to 2017, real-time webinars are offered by 90% of organizations and recorded are actually a little bit higher. 91.4% are offering um, recorded webinars. So again, like I said, given how prevalent um, webinars are as a form of learning, it's not too surprising that we saw those really high numbers for the webinar platforms earlier. Right, right. And, and we've seen, you know, at least modest growth uh, across most formats uh, over the years, I think, as uh, organizations have tended to add more options to their portfolio. Um, I mean, one other area we'll, we'll just note here as having seen some, apparently some pretty significant growth is, uh, is blended learning. And, you know, for anybody who's been in the, the e-learning world, learning world in general, you know, blended learning has been a, a buzz term for, for quite a while, probably not quite as much buzz around it now. Uh, but fortunately, there seems to be some more action around it now. And this is basically blending different formats of learning. And in the, in the context that we're talking about blending, you know, uh, online technology-driven learning with uh, offline um, sort of learning, uh, classroom-based um, learning. So we started asking about this back in 2009, and, and back then, 19% um, of respondents told us that they were uh, blending classroom-based uh, programs with um, with online programs. You know, jump forward to 2017. No, it was actually 15.5%. 15.5%, okay. Um, my, my bad there on reading the, uh, the, the stats. Um, Jump forward to 2017, and it's up to 38.9%. Uh, so, you know, almost 40% of organizations saying that they're they're doing something with blending um, the, the different formats of learning using technology. And uh, we see that as a positive sign because it, it tends to support good learning practices when that's happening. And one of the other questions um, that we've asked about almost from the get-go, we didn't do it in 2009, but from the 2011 report and on, it is about strategy. And this is something that I think is pretty near and dear to our hearts, Indeed. Jeff. Yeah. Um, and This kind of breaks our heart here, too, a little <laughs> that's bit. That's right, near and dear, and it's a little heartbreaking to see the, the stats. Um, basically, we, we've seen strategy for the use of, of technology to um, enable or enhance learning kind of remain pretty flat. When we first asked in the 2011 report, 22% said that they um, that their organization has a formal documented um, strategy for e-learning. And then in 2014, which was the next report, we rephrased the question slightly to remove use of that e-learning term. And, and to, so we asked if, if organizations have a formal documented strategy for how technology will be used to enable or enhance learning. So about the same, just 23.4% um, said that they have a, a formal strategy like that. Um, in 2016, um, it dropped a little bit down to 18% saying they had a, a formal strategy. And then this year, we're kind of back up into those earlier ranges. 23% say that they have a strategy to guide how they're going to use technology to, to enable or enhance learning. This year, for the first time, we added in an additional strategy question. So, you know, 
previous years, we were focusing on this idea of, do you have a strategy that really helps govern your use of technology for learning? This year, we kept that question and then added one that's more general. So we asked, does your organization have a formal documented strategy for its learning and education business? And we asked that question of all respondents. So not just those that say, yeah, we're offering um, technology-enabled learning, but all respondents, even the, the handful who said, we don't offer um, technology-enabled learning. And so that group, the group that has a general learning strategy is a bit higher, 37.7%. And that makes sense that that sort of general learning strategy, that would be a larger group and then sort of a smaller subset would have one specifically focused on the use of technology for learning. But whether you're talking about the 37.7% that have the general learning strategy or the, you know, under a, a quarter, the 23% that have um, a strategy for the use of technology for learning, I mean, that's, that's pretty small. I mean, it seems like given how essential strategy is for running a business that, you know, we would certainly love to see those numbers be much higher. And we certainly do hope to see them change over time. And, uh, you know, we said earlier, part of doing this report was contributing to the field. Um, we certainly hope that highlighting that as an issue helps to get more organizations and more organizational leaders, learning leaders, thinking about that and uh, perhaps acting on developing uh, a more formal strategy for their education programs and then, of course, for their use of learning and technology. So one of the things we've started to ask about in recent years, um, because it's really you know, emerged in, in recent years, is what we characterize as emerging formats for learning, because we've definitely seen you know, some changes in, in recent times. We've seen the emergence of things like massive open online courses or MOOCs. Uh, we've seen flipped learning become a thing where you're doing some of the learning online, some of the learning in the, in the, the classroom, and, and they're supporting uh, each other. Uh, oftentimes, you're doing the, the online learning as a preparation for the classroom to make the classroom time more effective, uh, more interactive. Gamified learning has become a big thing. Um, you know, micro-credentials, digital badging, uh, also something that's been emerging, and, um, and micro-learning, you know, these small chunks of, uh, of learning. So we've started asking about all of these in uh, recent versions of the survey, really beginning in, in 2014. And, you know, the, the main headline from that is that, you know, during the time that we've been asking the numbers have gone up, but they're still quite low in, in terms of, you know, are, are associations actually using these new formats, the MOOCs, the flipped classes, gamified learning, et cetera. Um, in general, the, the adoption rate has been below 15%, even as it's grown uh, larger. It hasn't grown past 15% um, from respondents, except in the area of microlearning. And microlearning seems to be the, the one trend that's really catching. Um, we heard that 18% of respondents were doing something with microlearning in 2014. Um, I'm sorry, and actually in 2016 when we first asked about that. So that's been a really recent one that we've asked about. But just over the course of the last year, um, we've seen it grow to 30.1% uh, as we're getting ready for this new version of the report. So, you know, a jump of uh, more than 12% in that time period. And we've certainly seen a lot of buzz about microlearning, a lot of interest in microlearning. We've presented sessions and had people present sessions about microlearning um, at events that uh, we've hosted or been involved with. So that definitely that definitely seems to be a growth area. Um, and we're hoping we're going to see some growth in, in these other emerging formats as well. 
Yeah, I think especially with the the micro credentials, I think there's a natural tie with micro learning, and um, that is uh, in the 2017 report and data. That is the next most popular of these uh, emerging formats, with 14.8 percent of respondents saying that they're doing something actively with those now. And so I, I think. As you're saying, I think we're poised for growth in at least those two areas in terms of micro-learning and micro-credentials. And, and I think with micro-credentials and the whole digital badging thing in, in particular, um, I, I think there's a barrier there right now still in kind of operationalizing that. How do you actually make that happen, both from a technology standpoint and you know, just the mechanics of how that works within the organization against, you know, existing certification programs and stuff like that. I, I would predict that we're going to hit a tipping point on that, like really soon. And we're going to see that one just, just shoot up very quickly when it does go up. One of the other questions that we added had to do with mobile learning. Um, we did not ask about mobile learning in the 2009 report, but in 2011, we asked if organizations uh, are offering mobile learning. And we asked that question very broadly. We just said, do you um, make some or all of your e-learning content available um, on a mobile device? So again, very broad. It could have just been that they had you know, one of their offerings that was mobile friendly, and that would have qualified them to say yes. But even with that broad definition, it was a very small group that was actively offering mobile learning. It was 8.9% of respondents. Um, if we skip to this year's uh, data, 2017, 49.7% are offering M learning of, of some sort. So, you know, we're right at uh, 50%, um, and, and clearly that's a big jump, and I think ties into what we were talking about with micro learning and micro credentials as well. I feel like the the, the mobile devices have, have made, help make micro learning really um, uh, possible. Yeah, we're definitely going to see, you know, obviously continued growth in that. And of course, a lot of organizations are doing M-learning without even knowing they're doing M-learning because, you know, of course, people are using their phones and their iPads to access stuff. And in many cases, you know, organizations need to be checking their Google Analytics to see what kind of mobile uh, action they're getting on their website in general, what those percentages are. And of course, those can be tied into what happens on a learning management system as well. So you can see how your content is being consumed, even if you didn't uh, explicitly plan it for mobile learning. And, and a point that we always make related to that is that uh, catalogs need to be ready for uh, purchase of learning at this point as well, for mobile purchase of learning. Because so often, people uh, who you're targeting for your learning experiences are getting those messages on their cell phones, on their smartphones via email. They're going to click a link right there. They need to be able to buy and then preferably consume right there as well. So, you know, to the extent that uh, the organization overall hasn't gone mobile with its uh, catalog and its e-commerce, we're certainly going to see more shift in that direction and the learning function needs to be thinking about that. One of the other questions we added, and this was a recent addition in the 2016 report, um, was about a chief learning officer. So we wanted to find out if anyone in the organization holds the CLO title or a similar C-level title that references learning, education, or knowledge. Um, and we added this question because we thought it would be a good barometer for kind of the amount of respect and, and emphasis that is given to learning within the context of the organization. And so in the 2016 report, we had 42.2% of respondents saying, yes, they have a, a CLO or a CLO-like um, uh, person at their organization. And then this year, the data is right at one-third, 33.3% of respondents say they have a, a CLO. 
And we're, we're certainly hoping to see uh, that number grow as well, uh, and, and believe it will. Um, you know, another thing that, uh, that we've asked about, and I think this probably, you know, relates back into strategy, relates back into um, uh, that role of, of a CLO and somebody, you know, really thinking about the learning function, is if organizations are using technology to repeat, reinforce, and sustain learning. So not just the initial delivery, which obviously a lot of organizations are doing, but are you, you know, using it strategically to make sure that that learning is going to stick and stay around? And we started asking that and in 2016, and uh, of those who are actually using uh, uh, technology to enhance uh, and enable learning, 31.5% said yes, that they are using it to sustain learning over time by, you know, repeating and and reinforcing. Um, In 2017, what will be released in the new report, it's 33.7%. So, you know, very modest, if any, growth. There could be, you know, some statistical, uh, may or may not be statistically significant there, Um, you know, but... But at this point, really only about a third of organizations that are using technology in that way. And I mean, in many ways, that, that's the holy grail for truly delivering value is, you know, not just uh, publishing using technology, but also making sure that that learning is going to, to stick over time. And then last year, uh, we added two questions around data. And so we asked if organizations um, integrate, and this could be manually or through automation, But if they integrate the data that they collect in their learning technology platforms with the data from other technology platforms, so that might be, for example, data from a learning management system being integrated with data from an association management system. But again, both categories, the the learning technology platforms um, was left broad, so it could also be instead of an LMS, could be a webinar platform, could be um, one of those online community platforms, and then the other type of platform, um, such as a membership management database or an AMS, again, that was left relatively broad. And we see about half of organizations um, doing some level of integration. So in 2016, 49.3%. In 2017, 47.1%. And then the other data question we asked about was, whether organizations use that data that they're collecting in their learning technology platforms to make decisions about current and future educational products and services. And, you know, for us, this seems like a no-brainer, right? You have this data and you're you're learning what it is that people are buying or what they're completing or what their scores are or how much time they're spending, whatever that type of data you have, it seems like a no-brainer to make use of it. And I'd say we'd see, you know, Decent but not great use of the data. In yeah. 2016, um, we had 18.7% of respondents saying they always make use of that data, and then another 29.1% saying they frequently um, make use of that data. So almost um, almost 50% making use of that kind of data always or frequently. In 2017, we had um, 14.9% saying they always use that data to inform their their product decisions, and then um, 30.4% using it frequently. So a, a little less than 50%. You know, perhaps a small drop off, but you know, not that big a difference between the 2016 and 2017 data. But again, this is another place for us where it seems like. Uh, just as having a strategy for what you're doing with your learning business and your use of technology for learning, um, that seems like an obvious place for organizations to devote some time and resources and, and mental energy. And, sim- and similarly, I would say, you know, making use of, of the data that you are getting um, to 
help direct and inform your product decisions seems like a, a no-brainer. Definitely. And so that's some data about data. And speaking of data, obviously, we've been throwing out quite a bit of it here. Um, we'll note again that uh, all of these stats, all of these data points that were given are going to be available in the show notes for the episode, along with some additional data about some of the changes we've seen since 2009 or whenever we first started asking a question. Uh, those uh, show notes, again, uh, you can always find at the episode number, in this case, leadinglearning.com slash episode 99. And the one last point we'll make about, you know, the, the questions, the data before um, we kind of exit this segment of the uh, of the episode is that um, we did drop some questions too. We've talked about questions that we've added. And so there have been things that we've taken off along the way just to make sure that uh, people would complete the survey. It wasn't going to be too long, too overwhelming. And some that we just weren't getting, you know, necessarily great response on. Um, but the, the main one that I'll, I'll note um, that we've dropped is around the, the pricing of online learning. We did use to, to try to get an estimate around different formats and how those different formats were being priced and tried to get a range on that and uh, did that for a little while. Um, we eventually got to the point where we, you know, we weren't sure exactly how trustworthy the data was, just you know, getting people to kind of give an average estimate. And also, we increasingly got the feeling that people were just sort of taking those numbers and plugging them into their pricing strategy, which is the last thing that we want to promote. Uh, pricing should be much, much more strategic than that. So we we actually decided to pull um, the the pricing uh, questions, and we don't we don't ask that anymore as part of the uh, the survey that underlies this report. So Jeff, as you said, we want to kind of end this segment where we're looking at some of the the changes in um, the the data points over the years, and talk about bigger picture how we think the the data in general, the report in general, might be useful to organizations. Yeah, definitely, because I mean, this is all this is all interesting, and of course, we're you know learning geeks and and uh, love all these kind of statistics, and we know a lot of the listeners are probably going to fall in that camp as well. But you know, how do you how do you actually use this kind of report? And of course, you know, one of the main things that uh, we hear from organizations is that uh, they're taking data in the report, um, you know, whatever's relevant to their particular situation, and they're using that to to make the business case within their organization for adding or growing their technology-based learning initiative. So, you know, if they're not doing e-learning yet, for example, uh, this may be the data that they're going to take to their board, to their executive team, whatever the case might be, and say, we really need to be doing this. Or, you know, if they haven't yet looked at uh, something like micro-learning, um, you know, they'll be, they'll be looking at that to, to, to see what's going on out there. Um, you know, and as part of that, uh, I think one thing that's, that's great about the report that comes across is that size doesn't really matter with this. I mean, we're seeing different types of learning and technology initiatives happening across all sizes of organizations. You know, the, 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 the data makes that clear. So again, you know, in the, in, if you're making a business case, you're at a small organization um, and you've got people telling you, well, you know, we can't afford to do this. This isn't something that a small organization does. Not the case. Um, there's definitely good data in the report to uh, help support your, your business case. And then along with this idea of making a business case, I think another area where we know that the report can be useful and is being used is for benchmarking. And, you know, that might be part of, of you know, how you're making your business case, but, but even on its own, I think it can be useful to see um, where you stand and, and particularly relative to similar organizations. Um, that said, there's a big caveat around this right here, right. which is that we are not by any means encouraging um, you and your organization to be a, a copycat. Um, the report may be helpful in, in helping you identify some um, best practices um, from an operational standpoint, but 
There is no uh, best practice when it comes to strategy. That's that's our bias anyway. You know, you can't really go out and copy someone else's strategy. The strategy really has to be organic and embedded in your organization and in your culture and in your goals. And and so you also have to make sure that your strategy differentiates. So you you can't just copy someone else and and, and say, all right, this is going to work for us. So. I guess it's a note of caution around, you know, even as you're kind of comparing your organization to um, the overall um, results from the survey, just be aware that, you know, just because something seems to be working for one organization doesn't mean it's going to be a, a silver bullet and necessarily work in your organization. And, and you definitely have to act, actively ask that question when you're using the report. Because, I mean, one of the things that we do and that we like doing in the report is um, looking at what organizations that uh, characterize themselves as successful with their use of learning and technology. You know, what, what are they doing that seems to stand them out from the pack? Um, so we ask in organizations to self-identify and, you know, among the ones that are very successful, we've we've found some characteristics that uh, they tend to have. Uh, you know, one of the the key ones is that, uh, not surprisingly, they tend to report uh, increased net revenue from their education offerings, their education offerings broadly, as a result of their use of technology for learning. So, you know, seventy six point seven percent of those organizations that identify themselves as very successful uh, are, are going to uh, have increased net revenue versus you know less than fifty percent, forty eight point one percent of just the, the broader group that uh, we surveyed. So. You know, certainly the, the more successful organizations are making more money at this, as might be expected. Um, you know, they're also making use of some formats more frequently than, than others. The, the organizations that self-identify as very successful are more likely to offer self-paced online courses. Um, they're also more likely to offer facilitated online courses and they're more likely to offer at least some mobile learning. And um, again, back on the copycat note, uh, you know, we're certainly not saying you should be offering self-paced online courses or facilitated online courses or mobile learning or, or that offering any of those is going to make you successful. But I think what it it shows is that there's um, some willingness to, um, to, to be uh, thoughtful about how they're approaching learning. You know, having a, a facilitated online course and the self-paced online courses often take a little bit more time and effort than than the real-time webinars. Um, now, that's a pretty gross generalization, not always true. Um, but, you know, I think there's at least here the suggestion that the very successful are being thoughtful about um, how they approach their learning and um, and are maybe also kind of open to some experimentation and trying some, some different formats. Definitely. And we also find that uh, those groups that identify as very successful are making much more use of professional instructional designers. And those can be contract uh, instructional designers, or they can be you know, people on staff who are definitely identified and have that background as an instructional designer, um, quite a bit more uh, likely to, to be using those than just the, the broader group of, of organizations doing learning and technology. And, and that can be a bit of a double-edged sword. It goes to this you know, strategy question. You know, we've made the point before that uh, good design is often the enemy of good learning because you can get you can get bogged down in trying to be you know too perfect, uh, trying to engineer uh, the, the perfect learning experience and not really be nimble enough, not really sort of leave enough with the the, the user to, to be able to engage in, in the right way and, and to get at what the user uh, uh, really needs. But that said, you know, uh, good design can also be extremely powerful um, if you're able to balance it with making sure you're understanding your, your market and what you're doing is really nimble and resonating with the market. 
Um, we've also found that those who self-rate um, themselves as very successful, um, they tend to do a better job of making use of their data. They tend to um, integrate the data that they're collecting in their learning platforms with other technology platforms, and they also tend to use that data um, always or frequently to make those product decisions. They tend to do that more often. So, you know, again, it's about making use of, of what they have out there so that they can be making informed decisions that really are uh, grounded in, in evidence of, of what the market needs and wants. And here's a big one. Uh, those that self-identify as very successful are much, much more likely to have a formal documented strategy for their learning and education business. And that's you know, 60% versus 37.7% in this case. So pretty, pretty big leap between those groups. And they're also much more likely to have a strategy for how technology will be used to enable or enhance learning. And then um, kind of related to the strategy question is that they're much more likely to have um, processes in place for some of the, the key aspects of a learning business. So they're more likely to have a product development process and a process for setting prices that covers their use of, of technology for learning. And so... Again, you know, that's just um, a few characteristics that, that we noticed in, in looking at those that self-identified as very successful. But um, we want to stress again that, that you know, successful organizations um, are doing these things, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily need to run out and, and do these things. But they do suggest, you know, that um, the organizations that are successful are, are more focused, they're taking a professional approach to the use of technology for learning and, and a professional approach to their learning business in general. Yeah, it's a combination, I'd say, of you know, strategy, uh, process, uh, good design, but balanced with uh, an entrepreneurial instinct, a, a willingness to, to take some risks, to try out some of the new things that are out there and, and see you know, how those uh, operate, which really should be the, the basis of good design and good strategy anyway. Um, so they're kind of pulling all of that together. And as you say, you know, just they're, it's a more focused, more professional effort around technology and learning. And we'll repeat you know, one more time that you can get all of these stats and you know, uh, other ones that we've mentioned in the show notes. Uh, so definitely you know, be sure to, to grab those at uh, leadinglearning.com slash episode. Episode 99. As we're exiting, we want to say thanks to your membership. You can find out more about your membership and all it offers at yourmembership.com. As I've already mentioned, you can get the show notes at uh, episode 99, but uh, while you're there, you're also going to see how to uh, access the Association Learning Plus Technology Report, um, and you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of the podcast, if you like being able to get things like you know this report on what's going on out there with uh, learning and technology in the association sector, then we would be truly, truly grateful if you would subscribe. So after you view the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 99. You can head to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes, and that will allow you to give us a rating on iTunes. It takes just a minute, and we really appreciate it because it makes it much easier for others to find this podcast. And please consider telling others about the podcast. Uh, you can walk down the hall and knock on their door and tell them to go to leadinglearning.com. You can send them an email about it, or you can send out a tweet simply by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. Or if tweeting isn't your thing, pick whatever social network you feel comfortable with, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it is, and get that leadinglearning.com address in there and tell folks I'm getting a lot of value out of this. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.